That's Sam Cooke's Wonderful World from 1960. The First Man in Space and on the Moon, The Summer of Love, Woodstock, The Beatles and the Rolling Stones, The Assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., Riots in the Streets, Protests Against the Vietnam War, The Black Power Movement, and The Rise of Ronald Reagan. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Year. During the 1960s, everything seemed to be changing. In this hour, we explore the mosaic of freedom, the soul of the 1960s. My guest is Craig Werner, cultural historian and professor emeritus of Afro-American studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the author of numerous books, including A Change is Gonna Come, Music, Race, and the Soul of America, and We Gotta Get Out of Here, the soundtrack of Vietnam. His most recent project is Freedoms, a short history of the 1960s. Welcome back to University of the Year. Glad to be here. Tell me about why you decided to take on this sort of really audacious task of writing a history of the 1960s. Yeah, I was teaching a freshman seminar at the University of Wisconsin on the 60s. I had very enthusiastic students, uh, some with a deep interest in it, some motivated by their parents or grandparents. Um, And I wanted a a good historical background for the music and the movies that were at the center of my class. And I looked around and I really didn't find one. Uh, The books about the 60s, there's a huge amount of good research on every aspect of the 1960s, but there's no synthesis that's anything like uh, up to date. And one of the things that's striking about the literature of the 60s is how often the mythologies of the 60s uh, replace the actualities of what happened, even in the memories of people who were there. Hmm. Well, let's start with the myth. What is it that we think about the 1960s that maybe is myth rather than fact? Oh, there's so many of them. Uh, you can start with the Kennedy administration as Camelot, uh, which was a myth that Jackie Kennedy literally constructed after uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, you can think about the Summers of Love, which, Summer of Love, which was really a mess on street level uh, in San Francisco. Uh, you can think about the myth of hippies spitting on Vietnam uh, veterans, which to the best uh, historical record never happened, uh, and on and on and on. Wow. So take us to 1960 then in terms of I guess the political situation, let's start with that in terms of the the White House and the kind of political view of the world. Yeah. And throughout the 60s, I think that the primary issue, as the book title says, is freedom. So everybody on every side of every issue framed what they were doing as in support of freedom. And that was almost worldwide uh, on that. But at the start of the 60s, if you look at it from the United States, the dominant way of framing questions was the free world, the free market, uh, the West uh, against the communist tyranny. It was called godless communism usually uh, of the communist bloc of the Soviet Union and China. And uh, it was framed largely in terms of uh, very traditional American values, but also in terms of a consumer economy, part of the uh, proof of our superiority 
was that we had a lot of stuff uh, that Richard Nixon very famously confronted Nikita Khrushchev on uh, kitchens. American kitchens were better. Mm. And through the first part of the 1960s, certainly when I was growing up, uh, affluence was seen as the mark of freedom, free enterprise. What about the Cold War? How did that fit in? Well, the Cold War was at the center of that because uh, it was uh, an us versus them uh, framing of that. And uh, the Cold War was framed in terms of our need to contain communism, uh, that we needed to, particularly after the Cuban Revolution, uh, it was framed as we had to stop communism. Uh, that's part of why the United States wound up in Vietnam, ultimately, the notion of the domino theory that said if we lose here, we'll lose there, and then we'll be fighting them on the streets of San Francisco uh, was, the again, the myth, I think, is the right way to uh, frame that. Um, but it also had a huge impact on domestic politics. Uh, there's what they called containment culture, the thought that we needed to contain all of the disruptive energies that work to subvert the American way of life, which again itself was largely a myth, looking back to a past that had never really quite existed as it was uh, framed. But that particularly came into play during the early 60s uh, around issues of race, uh, that the civil rights movement was often greeted as a communist plot, seen as a part of uh, a larger set of issues, uh, the women's movement, the early women's movement uh, was seen as women needed to play their roles to maintain an American way of life, which was a stereotype based on a relatively narrow swath of mostly white, mostly middle class, uh, mostly urban suburban experience. The kind of history that you usually do in your books is um, based on music with a kind of song, song track, you know, soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. um, and we open with Sam Cooke's Wonderful World from 1960. Um, tell us about that song and sort of the music at this point. Um, well, the song is really a wonderful place to start the 60s because Sam Cooke starts off saying, don't know much about history. Well, the thing was is Sam Cooke at that point in his life had had a very powerful career as a gospel singer within the African-American community, but he had made a conscious choice to cross over to the mainstream and cash in, quite literally, on the new markets that were opening up. And so he sang these teen songs like Wonderful World. This is what a wonderful world this is. Um, But uh, Sam Cooke knew better. And at the same time he's singing that, he's sneaking a very black voice, ultimately. He'll do Change is Going to Come. Uh, into the popular mainstream and is uh, wearing a mask. He's pretending we will go along with the dominant story here, but I've got my long-term agenda. To a large extent, that's what Martin Luther King uh, did also. We framed everything that he did in terms of standard American values. And when we talk about the Cold War, the Cold War played a major role in the civil rights movement because domestically, Uh, John Kennedy, who actually had a very strong relationship with Africa, um, but also some fairly conservative uh, uh, Republican uh, politicians understood that the civil rights movement, the continuing violence against black people in the United States, the images from Emmett Till in the 50s through the dogs in Birmingham were playing right into the hands of the communists in international propaganda that they could show those images in uh, Jakarta or Lagos 
and they made the United States look very bad. So part of the pressure for civil rights had to do in kind of an ironic way with the need to resist communism internationally. And there's freedom um, movements in countries all over the globe in the 60s. Oh, yeah, that uh, the uh, Herald of... uh, Macmillan, uh, the Mac- British Prime Minister Macmillan said at the very beginning of the S- of the decade that the winds of change were blowing through the world, and he was talking about South Africa. He was talking about the colonial, anti-colonial movements uh, that were sweeping uh, Asia, that were sweeping Africa, and uh, that in South America it was a little different because the United States had made it very clear they were not going to that we were not going to accept uh, any kind of leftist movement after Cuba. Uh, But uh, there was, yeah, there's freedom was in the air uh, everywhere. And by the time you get to the end of the decade, you see protest movements in Eastern Europe, you see them in Tokyo, you see them in Mexico City, you see them practically everywhere. You mentioned that women are also starting to question the roles they've been given. Do you hear that in the music? You very much do. One of the most important songs of the early 60s is Leslie Gore's song, You Don't Own Me, uh, which is a very direct statement that uh, I'm not going to be your little girl uh, anymore. And it grew out of a girl group music scene, uh, groups like the Shirelles and the Crystals and the Ronettes, uh, that was very, very vital. There was an energy there. And it's a ambiguous kind of energy because on the one hand, it's young women's voices. Uh, on the other hand, they're almost always singing about fairly traditional romantic uh, relationships. Um, there's a feminist scholar, Susan Douglas, who writes about uh, the girl groups, and she says that they reflect the odd position that American women had, uh, particularly after Sputnik, when we were worried about keeping up with the Soviets in space and technology. And she said, on the one hand, we were being told to be good girls, to go back and be wives, to play the standard roles, to be pretty. But on the other hand, we were being told that America needed every bit of its talent to resist the Soviets so that I was in an accelerated uh, science education uh, program and half our class was women. So things were changing. So let's hear Leslie Gore's You Don't Own Me. You don't own me. One of your many toys You don't own me Don't say I can't go with other boys And don't tell me what to do Don't tell me what to say And please, when I go out with you Leslie Gore's You Don't Own Me from 1963. Now, 1963, what a year. Yeah. Um, It's the end of the early 60s. One of the things about the 1960s is you can't really talk about the 60s. Uh, First thing I do when I teach it is I divide it into the early 60s, ending in November 1963 with the assassination of John Kennedy, and then a middle phase of the 60s, ending uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan as governor of California in 1966. But uh, 1963 is that transition year from late 62, really, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we have that wonderful world is 
taking place under the shadow of the mushroom cloud uh, there. And uh, and isn't there also the maybe I've got the date wrong, but is in 1963 also the march on Washington yes. with King and thousands, hundreds of thousands of yeah. people? It's the assertion uh, of the early phase of the civil rights movement, uh, the African American freedom movement, when it's focused on the South, uh, and is being certainly projected. The image of it, the myth of it, if you will, is of an interracial, nonviolent movement, and. That's true but incomplete, uh, that Dr. King had guns in his houses. He had to. It was uh, the civil rights movement, whatever our postage stamp version of it is, was not unopposed, that the um, forces of white supremacy, uh, massive resistance, they called it, were bombing. They were murdering. Uh, and within the nonviolent civil rights movement, it was absolutely necessary to – stand up and uh, really um, self-defense was what was needed there. I know in a past University of the Air program we did on women of the civil rights movement, that one thing you feel strongly about is that sometimes we have this sort of great leader approach where it's Martin Luther King leading the whole movement. Um, Right. You know, so coming out of the Leslie Gore's You Don't Owe Me song into sort of the civil rights movement and and the march on Washington, what kind of role were women playing? They were absolutely central. And the energy that was symbolically uh, brought together in the march on Washington had really begun with the uh, student-oriented sit-ins, the Freedom Rides. uh, And the most important figure in putting that together was Ella Baker, who'd been a organizer for a long time. And Ella Baker's uh, mantra was strong people don't need strong leaders. She said this is going mm-hmm. to take place within communities. That's where the real change is going uh, to happen. The Montgomery bus boycott was uh, driven largely by the energy of the women workers there that the economy was based on. And uh, at every stage, women were central and their voices were very central. Uh, also, uh, a little later on, Aretha Franklin becomes the centerpiece of uh, that, and that it's important not to underestimate the role of the music, the role of women, the role of churches and community in holding it together. It wasn't seeking for the great leader. It was a community thing. It's it's uh, interesting to me because I think most people probably never heard of Ella Baker. Sadly true, yes. Which is ironic if, if her point was that you don't need strong leaders, but then if you sort of get erased from the front pages of history. Sure. Uh, and that, again, is part of my motive in doing this, is that um, the front page story, writing history from above the fold of the front page of the New York Times will get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, that You've got to dig much, much deeper into the community dynamics, the ordinary people. It's m- merging the political history, which is driven by leaders, the intellectual history, which is driven by that. But the cultural histories, the social histories take place in uh, living rooms. They take place in uh, kitchens. Uh, churches. Churches, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the right, uh, the political right in the 1960s, which is a big, big part of the story, which gets too often left out of our image of it, the rise of um, the Republican Party as a conservative party as opposed to a what many people called Me Too liberals as Dwight Eisenhower, who the John Birch Society accused of being a crypto-communist. Hmm. Uh, and um, 
But the energy that uh, leads to Barry Goldwater's nomination for the Republican Party in 1964 uh, comes largely out of uh, living rooms and uh, barbecues in Southern California, uh, particularly in the Sun Belt, where women who are both participating in the new affluence, that sort of freedom, but also worried about it. They look out there and say, where can we maintain this? Is the federal government going to make us, is it going to infringe on our freedom uh, by making us uh, sell our houses in our neighborhoods to black people or whatever? Uh, That's also a largely a woman-centered and certainly a community-centered movement. I'm starting to see why you're book title um, is Freedoms, plural, because what freedom means to one person is very different um, and can infringe on someone else's freedom. And also in direct conflict with one another. It's a battle for control of the definition of what freedom means. So as we move into this sort of early middle part of the 60s, what what are some songs that we can hear and talk about? Well, I think that if you're looking for a song to typify the energy of the civil rights movement – uh, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions uh, did a song called Keep On Pushing, which came directly out of the black church. Curtis Mayfield said he got this song by thinking of the songs that his grandmother, who was a pastor, sung in her Westside church in Chicago. And then he got it onto the radio. Keep on pushing. I've got to keep on pushing. Mm-hmm. I can't stop now. So one of the interesting things about that song is that it's explicitly religious. The hallelujahs at the end come straight out of church at a time when it was very, very difficult borderline impossible to get a religious song on popular uh, radio. But Curtis Mayfield, again, with that very sweet energy of his, uh, infiltrates. And Dr. King was doing much of the same kind of thing with his movement. And and Curtis Mayfield understood what he was doing is supporting Dr. King's movement at that point. But as the middle part of the 60s unfolds, a lot of things happen that change the energy. Um, and it happens in the civil rights movement. It happens in the free speech movement uh, at Berkeley. Uh, it happens uh, in many, many different locales in many places. Uh, but increasingly, there is a urgency and an anger and a redefinition of the terms. It's slightly ironic because Lyndon Johnson, when he becomes president, is championing the Great Society, which is by far the most ambitious uh, set of legislation for social justice, anti-poverty, mm-hmm. uh, you name it, uh, civil rights mm-hmm. uh, in American history. And at the same time he's doing that, there is a growing sense, particularly in black communities in the North and in the West, that things are moving too slow, that it's all well and good that y'all are down there mm-hmm. telling the bad Southerners what to do, but Meanwhile, we don't have jobs here, the housing's terrible, and the cops are a problem on most of the 
riots in the north, the uprisings in the north, are as a direct result of tensions between police and the community. Um, and there's a shift on the white side of the movement that goes along with the war in Vietnam, which begins to escalate at almost exactly the same time. It's actually escalating in 64, but publicly it's recognized in 1965 as becoming a major uh, issue. But there is a shift from kind of a liberal sense of what freedom means is everybody should be participating in the good society, the great society, Johnson's society there, uh, affluence basically, uh, economic uh, freedom, equal rights, living up to the American dream to a sense that it is more a matter of living free. It's not so much fitting in with a system which is out there. It's a matter of critiquing the system, of saying things have got to change on a much more basic level than this. Um, And between 1965 and 1967, uh, every single voice is sounding from every single direction. It's 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 a beautiful moment uh, musically. There's a lot going on, but the sweetness and the anger and the uh, chaos and the harmonies, uh, all of it sounding at once in the music. And I think nobody exemplifies that better than Aretha Franklin, um, who, when she leaves her earlier career as kind of a almost a lounge singer. The Columbia Records wanted her to sing jazz. They wanted her to be Ella Fitzgerald, Mm -hmm. basically. And she's good at it, uh, but wasn't changing the world. And when she sits down and starts singing gospel-based soul music, uh, her voice starts to change the world and becomes a call that speaks to so many different people. So when she does respect, it gets a strong response from African-Americans. It's tied in with the development of black power, that shift from Martin Luther King to uh, Stokely Carmichael, if you want to phrase it like that. Um, But uh, it also speaks to women uh, who have heard Leslie Gore, and then they're looking at what's happening in the mid-60s, and they're not seeing a whole lot of changes that are working for them. Uh, and it's especially working for black women and women of color who are saying, yeah, we see this from both ways. So Aretha's Respect just becomes an anthem. Franklin, respect. We'll have more on the turbulence of the 1960s when we continue in a moment on University of the Year.
Uma vez para só assim Fez o You can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry Though the good is on the wing And you may not know why Come on, people now Smile on your brother Everybody get together That's Young Bloods Get Together. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Craig Werner, and we are talking about the mosaic of freedom, the soul of the 1960s. Okay, take us into that song, <laughs> Everybody Get Together. Yeah, by the time we get to the middle 1960s, there are some splits developing uh, within uh, the what's sometimes called the counterculture, but it's really a more complex set of uh, forces. Uh, part of the counterculture was very, very political, growing out of uh, the free speech movement at Berkeley uh, and growing into the Students for a Democratic Society, which went through several different incarnations over the course of the decade. Uh, And it was very tightly tied to the new left, to people who were rethinking Marxist thought, rethinking ideas of uh, revolution. But at the same time, there was a significant and growing number of uh, young people, largely but not only white, uh, who began to focus on what we call lifestyle, I think, today. Uh, the wanting to live outside of the bad vibe of Vietnam, particularly. The Vietnam was seen as the corruption of that society that their parents had told them they should find their place in. They said, no, I don't want that. I want to go somewhere where I can uh, chill, where I can be with my friends. Uh, It's the beginning of uh, widespread uh, use of marijuana, particularly in LSD, which is still legal at this point in time. And so it's uh, everybody get together, you know, smile on each other. Let's love each other. Uh, And it uh, results in growth of commune movements, uh, both urban and uh, rural. Well, and you've got the summer of love, which you said sure. was not what it's made out to do. And um... Yeah. The summer of love is, uh, again, mythic, and it was mythic before it began uh, in many ways, is that uh, the summer of love uh, really began with the great human being uh, in the winter of um, 1966-67. Uh, and it was a gathering of the tribes, they called it, at Golden Gate Park. Allen Ginsberg was there. Gary Snyder was there. Timothy Leary was there. A lot of the iconic figures of the 60s. Uh, the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane uh, played before they were well-known at all. They were local bands at the time. Uh, and uh, it was largely experienced as a uh, as a love-in. It was a really wonderful moment. Um, And it became publicized very quickly. And people started hearing about it. In Colorado, where I was growing up, there was uh, one of my friends down the block heard about the Summer of Love, and he decided he was going. Uh, And lots and lots of kids from across the country went. It's hard to figure out the exact numbers, but at least 70,000, probably 125,000 at one time or another. And 
uh, Haight-Ashbury uh, in San Francisco had nothing like the infrastructure uh, to deal with it. So what happens very quickly is that what starts out as this love-in and the Monterey Pop Festival uh, also uh, exemplifies that and draws people, becomes a really grimy street scene. And it's open to all kinds of hustlers. Uh, there are a lot of young girls there getting uh, rape is endemic uh, on hate. There's a shift from what uh, fashion designer Linda Gravenides, who did Janis Joplin's cool uh, outfits, uh, called the life drugs, uh, marijuana and LSD, to the death drugs, uh, speed and heroin. Um, there are people starving. Uh, uh, sexual diseases are pandemic uh, there. And uh, by the end of the summer, nobody uh, who's there is believing that it's lived up to the myth. It still maintains that mythic stature, mm -hmm. obviously. It's uh, advertisers continue to invoke the summer of love. Um, but it was uh, it was hard times for the people who were there. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who were founding their communes and making good faith efforts to live out that uh, vision of uh, love and an alternative way of doing things, uh, often moving beyond ideas of the uh, nuclear family, uh, sexual experimentation, uh, spiritual uh, experimentation. Uh, it's a key moment for Buddhism and Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism coming uh, to the West. There's tremendous creative energy uh, connected uh, with it. Um, and there's no simple way to reduce it to a mythic image. But you see it in part as a rejection of the authority represented by the government in Vietnam or by sort of corporate America and the emphasis on greed and consumerism and sort of a rejection. I mean, is that – would you see the trigger for, you know, what we think of as sort of the counterculture movement – as yeah. that something had changed because the Vietnam War was different than other wars. Yeah, the Vietnam War is a touchstone uh, for it. Uh, but the foundations are there are earlier with a sense that the materialism of the culture, uh, that the – a lot of kids are looking at their parents and they're looking at World War II veteran fathers who we would now say had PTSD, but there was no word for it uh, at uh, the time. Uh, we're seeing an awful lot of alcoholism in middle-class families. Uh, writers like John Updike and John Cheever chronicle that one uh, in harrowing uh, fashion sometimes. We're seeing uh, people being told that material well-being is the end-all, be-all of life, and they're not buying it. Um, one of the criticisms uh, of the hippie movement, which is only partially true, is it was a middle-class movement from affluent kids who knew that they had parachutes, safety nets uh, around them, and some that was the case. Uh, but not only. Um, that uh, I lived in a commune uh, for a while, and almost everybody in that commune was working class. Uh, they were not college-educated uh, uh, kids. My friends weren't, but they were m absolutely tied in. Uh, with that. And they were just looking at the world. They were looking at Vietnam. They were looking at the obvious hypocrisies of the political system. And they were saying, I want no part uh, of that. I want to live a, a better life. And the music drove a lot of it. I mean, it's just about impossible to overstate how important 
the music was at the time. One of my favorite uh, quotes about the 1960s is for, uh, from a British scholar, Jenny Diskey, uh, who was very much involved with the fashion scene and swing in London, which is another set of myths. Uh, but uh, she mostly thinks that the 60s were not all they were cracked up to be. But she says several times in her book, but the music really was better. <laughs> I buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I picture the 60s, one of the things, the images that comes to my mind uh, has to do with the hair. Yeah, yeah. So if you picture two people, one <laughs> in a suit with a crew cut, um, starch white shirt, and then, you know, looking sort of in despair at his son who's got <laughs> yeah. long hair, a headband, and, you know, yep. peace sign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this is on the white side of things. This dynamics are very different uh, in the black community, but that's absolutely uh, the myth there. And that notion of the generation uh, gap is real. I mean, there was a uh, rebellion uh, against uh, the older generation, a refusal to do what we were told uh, to do uh, at the time. And hair became a big, big symbol uh, of that. I mean, it looks just absolutely ridiculous in retrospect. Uh, but the battle over quarter inches of hair uh, was real. Uh, uh, I got tossed out of my school for... Uh, a, a couple of hours one day for uh, violating the hair code. And, you know, my parents were good, solid uh, Republicans. Uh, and they went over to school and they said, no, really? Uh, you know, yeah, no, you're not going to do this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the hair became a symbol. It became a battlefront. Uh, and um, – it became, it became a badge, really. It became kind of a of a uniform, a sense of freedom. Uh, you're not going to contain me. And that's now a very, very different kind of freedom. That is freedom to – freedom of consciousness, freedom to uh, explore ways of being that were far, far outside that old Cold War containment uh, consensus. And a lot of that was based on that – belief that the old system was just a lie. And you hear that in the music, in the song from Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love, the way it starts out. When the truth is found to be from the very beginning. Well, sure, with that line, when the truth is found to be lies. You know the joy within you dies right there. Yeah. And so you feel that that's the push part that leads the hippies to their alternative lifestyles. You know? The perception of hypocrisy, yeah. the perception of being fed something that's not yep. true. Yep, yep. And uh, we're going to get away from that. And the the joy within you dies. You, don't you want somebody to love? So in a sense, it's on the same page as the Youngbloods with... Uh, you know, smile on your brother, everybody get together, got to love one another right now, find somebody to love, but the tone is really different. And that's probably the biggest single change that happens during the middle 1960s. You hear it in Vietnam, too. You, 
the uh, soldiers who went to Vietnam at the beginning of the war mostly were there because they came out of the Cold War, because they believed that this was part mm-hmm. of the fight for freedom. But after they'd been there for a while, they came back and the vast majority of them knew that they were not fighting the war that they had been sold. And so the music that they embrace becomes angrier and angrier. We haven't talked about the Beatles, and we will when we continue in a moment with the University of the Year. Street Fighting Man, The Rolling Stones from 1968. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Craig Werner, and we are talking about the mosaic of freedom, the soul of the 1960s. So set up the Rolling Stones here for us. <laughs> well, that became an anthem for 1968, and 1968 is an absolutely yeah. mythic year. Uh, there are very few years in history that evoke quite as much just with the date. It was a year that was associated with revolution, um, though the curious thing is none of those revolutions really became revolutions in the sense of changing the system uh, for good. But uh, in Eastern Europe, in Prague, in Paris, the night of the barricades, uh, at Columbia University, uh, in Mexico City, in Tokyo, uh, at the University of Rome, at the University of Madrid, uh, it's hard to look anywhere where there wasn't uh, activity in the 60s, in 68, that looked like it was revolutionary. And why was that? What about 68? Um, People have argued about that quite a bit. (laughs) Um, It's 1968 brought together a confluence. It was a moment when the uh, there was a radicalization. The anger was growing deeper. The sense that Vietnam was simply a mark of the emptiness of the free world that had been the centerpiece of things up until 1963. John Kennedy based his entire uh, rhetorical pitch on the validity of that idea. And by 1968, very, very few young people are buying it in uh, that sense. Certainly no young people on the left uh, generally. The civil rights movement uh, has become – more problematic, that the tensions within it are building. And the authorities 
are very willing in 1968 to meet outbursts of perceived threat with violence. The Chicago Convention, uh, Mm -hmm. which was called a police riot uh, later on, Uh, the University of Rome, the Battle of Via Giulia, there were the slaughter of students in Mexico City that the – it looked like a battle. It looked like a war on the streets. And there was a romanticism that had been growing about what revolution meant. Revolution, if you went back to the early 60s, was usually thought of in Marxist terms. It was thought of as the working class would take over the means of production to use the shorthand uh, for that. But by the time you get to 1960, people are thinking that revolution means something different, that it means a transformation uh, that is less about taking over a government per se as changing something that's almost undefined on a basic level. So people can project their desires uh, into it. People talk about revolution as a festival uh, repeatedly. Uh, They talk about it as magic. They talk about it in almost these mystical terms of what was going on uh, at at the time. And what did the Stones mean when they talk about palace revolution? <laughs> and what, tell us about the song. Like, what what do you hear yeah. in the street fighting man song? Yeah. Well, the Stones, I think, were very much aware that they wanted to be at a center of that. They wanted to provide the soundtrack. Uh, time is right for a palace revolution is more or less. Let's just overthrow the thing, right? Let's get Let's get the rulers out of there, although I have no idea what they meant uh, Mm -hmm. by that. I don't think they knew what they meant by that either. There's a great film that Jean-Luc Godard, a French filmmaker who chronicles 1968 in films like uh, Le Chinois, The Chinese, um, that he went into the studio with the Stones about the same time when they were recording Sympathy for the Devil, and he montages it with images from 1968 and 69, and you see the Stones just channeling this energy that they're feeling out there and turning it into rock and roll. But I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to parse uh, the lyrics. I think, it's, I think it's the energy, not the message per se, that's carrying that. And it becomes a problem by the end of the 60s. The Stones are uh, the lead band at the Altamont uh, Music Festival, which was supposed to be the West Coast Woodstock. But it turned into just a horror show at which... A young black man was killed by the Hells Angels uh, right in front of the stage. Uh, Jefferson Airplane and Stones are trying to stop to getting things and absolutely failing. Uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors did the same kind of thing, is that they were channeling an energy that was primal. uh, And uh, it was clearly against the authorities that existed. But what it was for... uh, they weren't really clear on. Uh, One of the groups we haven't talked about yet that certainly is front and center in the 60s is the Beatles, and you can really see yeah. the tone and lyrics change from beginning to end as uh, if you look at what they did in the 60s. Yeah. One of the myths that more or less deserves its status is that the Beatles provided a soundtrack. The Beatles, <laughs> Dylan, uh, and Aretha Franklin, I think, live up to their hype. James Brown probably but the Beatles really begin uh, as just a part of that very early 
uh, rock and roll uh, energy, and it's it's joyous, uh, but it's not subversive. As, I want to hold your hand. Want to hold your hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she loves you. Uh, you know, it's it's fun, uh, and they were fun, um, and they stayed fun. But they grew, they changed. Uh, the Beatles meet Bob Dylan, uh, and that changes both the Beatles and Dylan. John Lennon starts doing more serious. Uh, songs uh, after they meet uh, Dylan. They've certainly been listening to him anyway. And Dylan wants to plug in with some of that Beatles energy. But then particularly during that, if you're going to shorthand it as the hippie phase of the 60s, uh, the Beatles discover LSD. Uh, Some of them do. Some of them don't. The group is not... It's four different people, each with their own arc. Uh, But John Lennon and George Harrison certainly... Uh, are involved uh, with it, and they become deeply involved with uh, Eastern thought. Uh, they are exploring uh, consciousness. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are working on avant-garde artistic uh, lines, uh, and they are just thinking and working very, very deeply. And I think it helped the Beatles that they were a group at that point, that they played off one another, that they had to... It was four very different sensibilities uh, working. But by the time you get to the uh, later part of the 1960s, the Beatles, unlike the Stones, are taking a step back from it. They're saying, we're not sure how this is working out. Is that because they saw the violence? I think so. I think so. I think that the violence uh, mattered a lot to them. Uh, they also had been involved with – there were attempts to develop kind of a hip capitalism uh, along the way to uh, – and the Beatles, uh, Apple uh, Corporation was a part of that. And it turned into a mess and they saw how much room there was for hustling and how much hypocrisy there was within the movement. Um, and so in a song like Revolution – uh, they are listening, they're watching, and they're saying, let's slow down, let's think about it. You say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evil. about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright Alright The Beatles Revolution from 1968 So they're saying count me out Yeah, when you talk about destruction you can say that you Count me out. And I think what they're doing is they're seeing that there's been a shift from that emphasis on love. All you need is love uh, was their version of that. Um, But I think they're also aware of the hypocrisies. They're aware that in the communes, women are still doing the child care. They're still doing the the housework. They're aware that within uh, the 
uh, weathermen, that women are being sexually exploited there. They're seeing uh, the, the hypocrisies everywhere. And I think they're also aware that this was opening doors for the right wing um, to blow back, to push back hard against the 60s and to reassert their version of freedom, uh, which was connected with the Cold War version, the anti-communist version. But by the end of the 60s, it's much more focused on the domestic side of things. When Ronald Reagan runs for governor of California in 1966, he's basically running against the University of California. He's running against the hippies. He's talking about the horrible orgies that they're having up there, uh, that the law and order, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew, are capitalizing on the fact that people look at the TV and they're seeing cities burning. Uh, They're seeing Vietnam, right, and they don't like that uh, either. The war in Vietnam isn't popular with much of anybody uh, by the end of the uh, 1960s, but it's easy to target what the uh, the left uh, has become. It's easy to target the Black Panthers. Uh, it's easy to say, look, they're carrying guns. It's about the violence. It's easy to target the weathermen when they blow up the townhouse on West 11th Street in New York City. Um, and I think the Beatles are aware of what's happening aware there and aware of the potential. Is there sort of racism at all in it? In in other words, if you say you say you want a revolution, um, we all want to change the world and so on, and sort of stepping back from that, is it denying the legitimacy of those who are calling for major change? I don't think that they're uh, denying the validity of change. I don't think it's racial Mm -hmm. uh, for them. I think that they're thinking more about the Stones at that point. I think they're thinking more about the... uh, Riots in uh, Grosvenor Square in uh, uh, in London, which break out over a Vietnam demonstration, uh, which shocked the British because they did not think their police were going to do what our police were going to do in the U.S. So I think it's more general uh, for them. But there's certainly an undertone of racial backlash in all of it, that uh, connecting the excesses is the way that the right would phrase it of the uh, great society. They'll attack Lyndon Johnson's policies for being economically uh, wasteful. But the fact is Lyndon Johnson was still running budget surpluses at the end of his career, even with uh, Vietnam. So the subtext there was race. The subtext is that uh, the riots are going to spill out of the ghettos and come to the suburbs. So if you had to, I know, you know, it's it's kind of an impossible task to talk about the the 60s, you know, reduced to just a little bit of time. But if you had to sum up just a few key things about it that make it unlike any other decade, how would you put it? Yeah, I think that the elements of it that are most striking to me is the fact that everything's happening at once. The students in my class cannot believe how much things pile on top. Of one another, the Gulf of Tonkin incident that gets us into Vietnam happens at the same time that uh, uh, the civil rights bodies of murdered civil rights workers are found in uh, Mississippi. Uh, things are all happening at once. There's never a moment when you can take a step back and breathe and get a beat on where things are. They've already changed by the time you look back. Uh, the other thing about the '60s that I think is most important is that. Problems and all 
ideas of freedom were taken seriously, that across the board, whether you're talking about William Buckley or James Baldwin, who had a wonderful debate at Cambridge in uh, Oxford, uh, whether you're talking about uh, Ronald Reagan or Lyndon Johnson, uh, uh, whether you're talking about uh, Ella Baker or um, uh, Malcolm X, people were taking freedom seriously. They were thinking, what does this mean in our lives? How do we get there? It wasn't just a bumper sticker. It wasn't something to be manipulated to control an electorate. Of course, people did uh, use slogans and whatnot. But at the core, there was a very, very serious sets of debates about what being free meant. And I think those debates have never been as central in American culture since that time. My guest has been Craig Werner talking about the mosaic of freedom, the soul of the 1960s. Thanks, Craig. As Thanks always. for having me. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Year. Ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow. Don't you know it's gonna be? Don't you know it's gonna be?